Well, good morning. Uh, if you're with the children's ministry, you are excused. There should be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are in the book of Amos. Now, we're going to look at chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. Some of you use fake Bibles. I promise you, you will, I think, be more helped if you have an actual Bible, because we're going to be flipping around a bit. So, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. People will come and bring you a Bible, because I think you very much will be helped with having one in your lap as we go along. Um, uh, a few months ago, I agreed to, to coach my son's basketball team. He's in second grade. And it was great, it was fun, but there was one little boy who was, I think, my favorite. And he was a boy who, uh, I'm not even sure he liked basketball. He never played basketball, but here's a little flavor of this boy. At one point, it was the first game, I walked to him, he was sitting on the bench, I gave him a high five, and I said, aren't you excited? It's our first game, are you excited? And he, without missing a beat, looked at me and he said, hey coach, is it okay if I take a nap on the bench? Well, I, lo- I love this boy, but in all honesty, there was days where I'd show up on Sunday and I'd go, I don't know how I'm going to preach because I think I lost my voice on Saturday. I was just yelling at this little boy, right? Right? I would always be, I'd be like, where's your man? Because he wouldn't be playing defense. He- he'd just pick up the ball and run and I'd yell, dribble, dribble. He'd just stand in the corner with the ball and I'd be like, pass, shoot, do something, kick the ball, I don't care, just get rid of it. I would just yell constantly at this boy all throughout season until it was probably one of the last games I realized something. That what was really going on is that there were so many voices crying out for this little boy's attention. His parents were yelling. The other team was yelling. Players were yelling. I was yelling. The other coach was yelling. That all these voices were kind of muting or drowning out my voice as the coach. Now, that's a metaphor for us, isn't it? I think you kind of know where I'm going with this. He is a perfect illustration with how all of us live. Right? There's all these voices, all these inputs that come to us that drown out the most important voice in our lives. The voice of God. Right, so, so we gather on Sundays, in part, to hear God's voice, to hear the word preached, to sing God's word, pray God's word. We come, in part, to, to hear God's word, but that's for an hour, give or take. If I go really long, maybe an hour and a half. But then we go home, turn on the TV, and the voices start coming, don't they? We, we drive to work, turn on the radio. More voices. Twitter, social media, the news, doesn't matter. Friends, they they speak to us. And they're shouting for our attention. And so God, God, God speaks to us, tells us about his goodness and his grace. But then other voices come in and begin to mute out God's voice. Twitter shouts, look over here on some hot take. We're walking in the grocery store, 
And God is speaking, and then all of a sudden we see a magazine that tells us that's how we're going to secure a man. That's, that, that's how, what true beauty is. Look over here, the magazines are crying out. We could go on and on and on, can't we? We're having lunch with friends, and the peer pressure is so loud, it's deafening loud. It's pushing out the very voice of God sometimes. God speaks, or I better put, God is speaking. The tragedy is that sometimes we don't listen. Or maybe most tragic of all, it's not that we just don't listen, it's that we didn't even hear the voice in the first place. And that is one of the tragedies in the book of Amos. It's the deafening terror of spiritual deafness. Now, this is a very large section, and so uh, I, I love to kind of just, you know, re- read through the text and kind of just unpack the text. We're not going to do this. There's four chapters, and I promise you we would be here for an hour and a half if I did that. But, but in one sense, it's, this section is perfect because really what the author is doing is repeating theme after theme, right? There, there's some major themes, and then there's some minor themes, and there's a kind of repeat pattern about what the author is doing. So, so you see there in chapter 3, 4, and 5, it begins with, hear the word. So, so there's, in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, you have three messages of judgment. Then if you flip over to chapter 6, there's three messages of woe. Messages of judgment, then messages of woe. And then in the middle, in the middle of the book, And in the middle of this section is a lament. So the big idea is this, and then we're going to unpack it in kind of three parts. The big idea is that the only way to live is to listen to God's word. And so what we're going to see is, we're going to see how appropriate God's judgment is on his people. That's kind of the first part that we'll look at. We'll do that quickly. The second will be our kind of biggest chunk. And what happens is God's going to unpack his reasons for judgment. So so chapter 1 and 2 is a declaration of judgment. And now God says, I'm going to explain why I am judging you. I'm going to give the reasons for my judgment of my people. And then third is an invitation in light of judgment. So, the appropriateness of God's judgment, the reasons for judgment, and an invitation in light of judgment. That's how we're going to unpack these kind of bigger chunks of Scripture. So if you remember from last week, in chapters 1 and 2, God declares judgment on his people. And the, the image, if you remember, the sort of metaphor, the, the terrifying metaphor is the lion roaring. Remember that? Well, chapter 3 picks up this imagery. Look there in chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Now, the Lord roaring is terrifying. If you've ever heard that. But it gets actually even more gruesome. Look down at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, 
two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Idea? When, when God's done with Israel, there's not going to be much that's left of her. Now, what, what, what is this judgment going to take the form of? Well, we find out that it's a very appropriate judgment. That the punishment fits the crime, as it were. So look down at chapter 3, verse 11. Right? And we're going to see this. Again, there's this repeated formula. So we're going to see it in almost every chapter. Amos tells us what this judgment is. Chapter 3, verse 11. An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Exile. Or flip over to chapter 5. Starting in chapter 5, verse 3, or chapter, chapter 5, we have the three woes. So chapter 5, verse 18, we have woe. Chapter 6, verse 1, we have woe. Chapter 6, verse 4, woe. Now, a woe is just a declaration of judgment. And so these woes come thrice. They come. But look at how they're described. Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Is it darkness and not light? As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Right? He gets away from the lion only to find a bear. Or went into the, ho- uh, the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom? with brightness in it. So, so God's people, as it were, yearned for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is nothing short of God's judgment on God's enemies. And so Israel's like, bring it on. They yearn for the day of the Lord. Ah, but there's a reversal, isn't it? They think that they'll be rescued when the day of the Lord comes, when judgment comes on the nations. Little do they know that they're going to be judged with them. They're not going to be, they're not going to come out of judgment unscathed. And then you go to the second woe in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Then skip down to verse 4. Once again, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Right? They're just at ease. And verse 7, therefore, and we'll see the word, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate the strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Judgment's coming. And the judgment is coming in the form of exile. Assyria is coming. Now, here's the interesting part. Israel is at peace. Things are going well in Israel. The stock market's doing great. There's no recession. Everything is calm. But it's like that, that, the eye of the storm, you know, in a hurricane, right? It's all calm, but 
the storm's coming and Assyria is marching and judgment will come on God's people in about 20 years. Now, why exile? Well, just think about it. Just just think about it. God's people, in one sense, have pushed God out of their life. And so what is the punishment for them? Exile. Because being exiled isn't just, oh, we we lost some, like, great property, right? It's not like, oh, yeah, now we lost this great real estate. No. You see, the promised land was God in the people's midst. That's what was so glorious about the promised land is that God was with them. And so exile was metaphorically and literally an exile from God's presence. So God isn't leaving his people as it were. God's people have left God. And so he says, well, you've left me. And the only inevitable consequence is that you will be exiled. Assyria is coming. And so exile is, in one literal sense, a quite appropriate judgment for their sin. Now, how, how could God do this, right? I mean, how could God exile his people? Well, that really is what this whole section is about. And this section really is a sort of a poetic explanation of why God's people are judged. Why God is valid and right in judging his people. Now, I, I, maybe some of you are wondering, like, how is this? Like, God's judgment on Israel, how is that applied to the church? Or how is that applied to any of us? We might even think, well, well, we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. In the new covenant, Jesus took our judgment on himself and exhausted it, and I can't break the new covenant. Which is true. So what relevance does this text play for us? Well, I'll tell you the relevance. What we're going to find, I hope you'll see this very clearly, is that Israel's temptations to sin sound eerily similar to ours. Right? We, we, can, we can look down at Israel and be like, oh gosh, how could they? They're just so hard of hearing. I mean, God is just so patient with them. I would never do that. But then you just step back and realize, no, Israel... Israel is just like us. Their temptations are our temptations. Now, what are those temptations? I think, I think there's many, but one of the repeated kind of gongs of judgment and the reasons for judgment that come, I think come in the form of three kind of sins. One, and we're going to look at these, one, superficial religion. Two, a kind of a self-centered social ethic. And then three, and I think the worst, I think those two are kind of the scabs, but underneath them is the third sin, which is a rejection of God's word. So first, superficial religion. Chapter four, verse four. We read this. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Now, I'll just keep reading, but, but uh, I think it's helpful to think that God is sarcastically trash-talking his people. So, so if you are one of those people that are naturally sarcastic, thinking, do I need to repent of that sin? Uh, there's sarcasm in the Bible, okay? And so here, God is sort of mocking his people. 
sarcastically. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. Bethel and Gilgal were the religious centers. They were temples. That's where you went to worship. And he says, come, you think you're going to come worship me? No, you're just going to come and sin. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of which is leavened, and proclaim a free will offering and publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Do you see the sarcasm dripping here? He's mocking, sort of trash-talking, right? Here's God, God's sort of sending an invitation out. Come, worship, only you're not going to kind of subtract your sins when you worship. You're going to multiply your sins as you worship. Because Israel loved to worship. They were a very religious people. And they loved to come, but they loved the, the glitz and glamour of their religion, right? They loved the show of it. They loved to take their free will offering, which was supposed to be done in secret and in private, and display it for the world to see. And God mocks them sarcastically. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 21. Go there. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then in chapter 4, we have the same sort of language used in verse uh, 6 through 13. I'll just point you to that to look at there later. Israel may have been religious. They showed up to church. They, they gave sacrificially, they served to some extent, and yet their religion, it was sort of a sham. It was just external. It was to impress other people, all the while their hearts were rotten in sin. Now, Jesus picks up this same sort of idea in Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the good guys, the moral people, the people who gave and showed up to religious celebrations, they were the good guys. And Jesus comes and pronounces not one, two, but seven woes on them. Basically for their hypocrisy, for their spiritual sham, that they, they, they love to display their religion, but they were far from God. It was all external. And I think it's not just Israel or the Pharisees. I mean, we all have this temptation. The temptation to have superficial religion be a barrier from us to God. You see, superficial religion is ritual at the cost of relationship. I'll, I'll say that again. Superficial religion is ritual at the cost of relationship. You see, you can seek God through a ritual. We, we have lots of them. I mean, we, we gathering here is sort of a ritual, right? Every Sunday we gather. You can worship God and grow in understanding who God is through ritual, but you can also use ritual as a means to ward God off. Well, I came to church, so I'm good. 
I had that quiet time. I'm good. Right? You, you can treat all these, these good things and treat them like rabbit's foot, as talismans. Just ward off the bad stuff. But God's not having it, is it? They looked right. They were doing all the right things. They were marching through the steps, but their hearts were far from God. And so because of their superficial religion, judgment falls on them. That's sort of the first indictment of their sin. But then second, there's a second reason. And it is their self-centeredness as it relates to their social relationships, as it relates to their ethics. And like, again, you're just going to see this pulled all the way through these chapters, this Repeated gong of their sins of self-centeredness related to their ethics. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word, hear this word, you cows of Basham, who are on a mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Hear this word, you cows of Basham. Now, I don't recommend calling a woman a cow. But if we did that sort of culturally, it would, it would kind of look one way. But really what, what the sort of metaphor is, is that these women have become like cows in the sense that they've become healthy and plump. Their, their, their wealth and they're spending all this money on themselves so they're more beautiful. So we think of cows negatively, but this was like, no, they've, they've become more healthy and beautiful, but at the expense of who? At the expense of the poor and the needy, right? They, they just sit back on their yachts. They sit back, uh, you know, on their chaise lounge as, as their servants are serving them, and they just go, husband, get, get me another Cosmo. Or turn to chapter 5, verse 11. We read, once again, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. Go to chapter 6, verse 4. See the same thing again. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs like you two and whatever and the sounds of harp and, and like David, invent themselves instruments of music. They've got all this leisure time. They're just having a great time. They drink wine in bowls, not in cups. That's just the abundance and anoint themselves with the finest oil, right? Chanel perfume. But look at their attitude. They are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. God's people are to be marked by justice and righteousness and truth and helping the vulnerable and loving their neighbor, not getting rich at the expense of their neighbor. That's exactly what they did particularly their leaders. Israel's leaders were too concerned with their pleasure, too concerned with their bank account, too concerned with their economic, you know, increase, that they took shortcuts and thought, well, if it comes in a shady way, 
There are always the haves and the haves nots. Jesus says, the poor you will always have. So why not just take advantage of them a little bit? You see, in Amos's day, affluence, that's what we're talking about, right? They were just affluent. Affluence brought on injustice. And I think that is still a temptation for us all today. I think it's one of the loudest voices calling out to us, isn't it? Get more stuff. Get more stuff. And the, the, our whole world and culture is stacked towards creating discontentment in us and in our hearts that will can, as our culture says, as a- Amazon prophetically tells us, can only find its happiness once you get the latest and greatest technology or iPhone or whatever. And here we learn that if you worship money, if you worship affluence, if you, if you covet your neighbor's stuff, it doesn't just hurt you. It doesn't just hurt your relationship with God, although it does do that. It has horizontal implications. You, you hurt your neighbor. But see, the New Testament then picks up this sort of imagery and pulls it out. This is not just like Old Testament religion that we are supposed to live with other people in mind, that we're supposed to have a a social ethic that thinks that our neighbor is important and we should think through how to help our neighbor. Paul just pulls that same thread along in Philippians 2. And he says that Christians should be humble and count others better than ourselves. That, That we should look to the interests of others before we look to the interests of ourselves. Now, That's like impossible. That's really, really hard. And Paul knows this, and so he does something lovely. He says, you should think and count others better than yourselves. You should say that their interest is more important than mine. But then he roots all of that. He marinates it and saturates that truth in Jesus himself and says, well, Jesus counted you more important. Jesus sacrificed for you. He emptied himself, took in the form of a servant, dying for you. You, you see, the, having a social ethic and, and, and pursuing your neighbor and loving your neighbor and thinking through the, the vulnerable, that is not the gospel, okay? So, so, so giving money to the poor is not the gospel, but it is an application of the gospel. You see, the gospel is Jesus Christ living, dying for sinners, reconciling a people to himself. That is the gospel. The gospel is Christ sacrificing himself to save sinners. But an application of the sacrificial life of Christ is that we now, unified to Christ, live sacrificially and say, well, Christ loved me enough to die for me. Christ, who, who had just wealth, took on poverty for me. Well, an application of that Christian gospel is maybe I can take some of my wealth and help those who are less fortunate than me. It's an application of the gospel. I think it's an inevitable application of the gospel. The more you think about the sacrifice that God made through Jesus Christ, the more you start realizing what a beautiful life is in light of living sacrificially ourselves. That's the second indictment on their sin. They were self-centered. I think particularly the leaders were getting rich in light of the poor. But there's one more, and I really do think this is the, the reason 
behind all of these. That this is sort of the core reason, the core sin, that then those other sins are just birthing out of it. Yes, they were superficial in their religion. Yes, they were self-centered as it relates to their social ethics, but those were the scabs of their sin. It went deeper. The real sin is that they rejected God in light of his word. So in these four chapters, we have three messages of judgment and three woes of judgment. So God is speaking judgment, and how are they to respond? Or better, how did they respond? They didn't listen. They didn't hear. We clearly see this in chapter 4 with the repeated phrase. Look there in chapter 4. And they did not return to me, declares the Lord. They did not listen. It says that God spoke through famines, verse 6, chapter 4. He brought drought, verse 7. He brought mildew, verse 8. He brought pestilence, verse 10. They didn't listen. Now, ironically, these are not just, well, that's weird. They bought mildew. That's not great. And pestilence, that's not great either. Famine. No, no, no. These are very, very particular. Once Israel heard this, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly what Amos was saying. You see, those words are the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Basically, what Amos is saying is, you broke the covenant, and now the covenant curses are coming on you. And five times As he spells out these covenant curses, falling on God's people, he says, you did not return to me. You did not hear my voice. You did not listen to my voice. You did not repent. You did not confess. You did not return to me. And then then you get to verse 12, which is sort of the the, the culmination of all this. And it says, look there, verse 12, chapter 4, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. It's like those times, I remember when I was a kid, and when my dad got quiet, that's the time you know that I'm really in trouble, and I began to prepare to meet my father. Prepare to meet God in light of your sin. And if you think that's horrible enough, it all kind of comes to a climax in chapter 5. So so these chapters are in a chiastic structure, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, that they're woven together intentionally by the author, and a chiasm works perfectly that the emphasis is right in the middle. And so in the middle of the book, in the middle of this section, we have a lament. Look there in chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. And then for 17 verses, we have this lament. Now, what is a lament? Well, we sang one right before here. Right before I came up. We sang together a lament. And I'll just say, this is complete aside, but the modern evangelical church has a really hard time singing lament. We love the praise music, but to sing a lament, just sit in sadness, that's hard. A lament is basically a crying out to God. It's crying out to God in light of suffering. It's in a 
an expression of deep emotion and pain, normally directed to God, but not here. Go down to verse 16. Verse 1 starts with God's lament over his people, which then turns verse 16 into God's people finally lamenting themselves. In all the squares there, squares, there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyard there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. When judgment comes, all there's going to be is mourning, a funeral song. We start with God lamenting his people, and we end with God's people lamenting themselves. And once again, in this section, in these 17 verses, we have um, their sins laid out. Their religious sins and their social sins. Verse 7, verse 11, verse 12. But then one of the saddest elements is, starting in verse 4 and verse 14, God sends out invitations. Look there, verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go in exile. And Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he breaks out like fire in the house of Joseph. And it devour and it devour with none to quench it from Bethel. Go down to verse 14. The same theme. Seek good and not evil. That you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So so there we see three times and once implied, God sends out an invitation to seek him and live. But remember, this is a lament. And so what I think is happening is an invitation is going out, but it's not an invitation they can respond to. It's an invitation that's already they've already missed. Have you ever had this? You got an invitation in the mail to a birthday party or something. You get it and you're like, oh, I'd love to go to this, right? And you put it down. And then all of a sudden you pick it up like a month later and you realize, uh-oh, it was last weekend. What's going on here? These invitations that God sends out to seek him and live, they're like ghost ships. They've already passed. The imitations are sent out, and it's too late. And then we get to the center of the book. At the center of this chapter, the very thesis, I think, of this book. Look there in verse 8 and 9. What we find, when all is said and done, because we don't listen to God, God's people must prepare to meet their God. And here, the the curtain, as it were, is kind of drawn back, and we see God as the creator God. Verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, the stars, the universe, the galaxy, and turns deep darkness into morning, and then darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that the destruction comes 
upon the fortress. Now, you know the reference that this is referring to, alluding to. Amos is connecting to Genesis 1, isn't he? When God created the heavens and the earth, brought light out of darkness. When God created something from nothing. And so, there's sort of this eerie silence and this realization that just as God created something from nothing, just as God took not a people and made them a people, just as God created a people for himself, God can and will decreate his people. He formed them, now he's about to deform his people. Judgment's coming. Exile is inevitable. And that's how our text leads us. But it's not how I'll leave you. You see, the invitations that rang out to Israel, they wouldn't respond. It was too late. But the invitation that rings out in Jesus, it still goes forth. In John's gospel, we read, for for God, and you all know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish in exile like Amos, but have what? Eternal life, that they might live. You see, the invitation in Christ, it's ringing out through all the earth, through all the world. And if you hear that imitation, if you hear the ringing of Christ Jesus, it means that it's not too late. But it also means that one day it will be too late. The music will one day fade into into eternity. You see, Christ Jesus, he died and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. He took our judgment, the judgment brought on from our sins because of our spiritual apathy and our social sins and our individual sins. You just name it, our sins. He takes that judgment that we should have gotten. He takes it on himself. In his life, death, and resurrection, he conquers it all and says, as he displays it in his resurrection, Seek me and live. Life is found only in one place. All of this, all of our world is going to shout, no, you're going to find life here. You're going to find life there. You know, it's at 24-hour fitness. It's out here. It's just at beauty. You name it. That's where life is found. But I promise you this, by divine inspiration, I can say as a prophet, because this is exactly what this says, that there is life in only one place person. True life comes in Christ Jesus. And if you hear that voice crying out to you, if you hear the voice of Christ, if you see his life, death, and resurrection, if you believe in that story and turn to him in repentance and faith, you will live. It was too late for Israel in Amos' day. It's not too late now. So if you hear the invitation ringing forth from Jesus Christ, seek him. And I promise you this, you'll live. Let's pray. God, we... um
we, we know that this is a heavy topic. Judgment. And yet if we stare enough or think enough about judgment, we don't come off looking like the hero. We've been, our lives are much more like the villain. And so we thank you for the grace that we can receive in Christ Jesus. And so we, we receive that. And Lord, I just pray that the, the invitation to seek you and live, Lord, that, that whether it's the first or the millionth time, that we would be a people that continually seeks you, that we might find life in you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.